Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Reader podcast is Billy McKnight. Billy is the head basketball coach at Prolific Prep, one of the nation's top high school basketball programs. Prolific aims to foster the growth of prolific student athletes who are impactful citizens and elite basketball players. Some of Billy's past players include NBA players such as Gary Trent Jr. of the Raptors and Josh Jackson, as well as numerous players recruited to schools such as Duke, Kansas, UCLA, Xavier, Ohio State, and Oregon. Billy, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Darren. Appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate it. I know you're on the road a ton. I know you got two little ones running around, so I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, yeah. If you if you hear any background noise, we, we got a three-month-old and then an almost three-year-old. One of the beautiful things about being in business or coaching while you're having young kids at the same time, there's there's always that that balance that you got to find. So take me back in time. How did you get into basketball or in sports in general? I finished up, well, I started, I've been playing sports my whole life. Graduated from UC San Diego. I got hired by Accenture. And I was working in downtown San Francisco and my youngest sister, the oldest of four, my youngest sister was playing high school basketball at the time. So I'd go watch her games on the weekends. And uh, of course, I'd stick around and watch the guys game afterwards. And the coach asked me if I wanted to come and help him out. So this was all the way back in the late 1990s when I first started coaching. And I just found myself during the day thinking about my high school team that I was helping coach, even as an assistant coach back then. And then uh, I ended up getting the head coaching job at our, at our rival high school, Tamil Pies High School in Mill Valley, California. And you know, at that point, it was just like, okay, I got to make a decision. Am I going to continue to be a consultant and work the software life in San Francisco? Or am I going to think about taking a different career path and ended up going for basketball, just following my heart and doing what I, you know, really love to do. It was just so much fun being a part of, you know, getting guys ready for, you know, game each, you know, or two games each week. And that challenge of just, you know, constantly having, you know, a new opponent and trying to develop the players, not just on the basketball court, but, but off them as well. Just struck a lot of chords with me as, as a person and feeling like that I was doing something worthwhile. Yeah, it's interesting is you are a, a college baseball player. So what led you back to basketball and not to pursue coaching in baseball? Uh, that's a good question. I, I just always loved playing basketball. Basketball is like, I, I think it's the ultimate team sport. I think that when there's a basketball team and everything is clicking from a team perspective, you know, just beautiful things can happen. Teams can be much better than the personnel that they actually have based off of how well they work together. And, you know, with baseball, it's, it's more of an individual sport, you know, as much camaraderie and everything that there is on a baseball field at the same time, like it's not necessarily a team sport. You've got a single pitcher's 
hitting, you know, pitching to a, a single hitter. Whereas in basketball, there's just a lot more the game never stops. It keeps moving. And, and there's so much more effect that, it, that, that a team can have on the outcome of a game rather than individuals. So after coaching a couple of years in high school, I think a lot of people can relate to that experience, but I think making it an actual profession is, is a pretty big leap for most folks and a dream for people is what was that next step for you? How did you make that actually more of an actual career for yourself? Well, actually, I didn't even think it was going to be possible. As I said, I got a head coaching job. So I basically ended up stopped working at this consulting company where I was making almost $100,000 a year to coach a high school team making $2,400 a year. So it doesn't really translate. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do work-wise. And then I was like, man, if I could, if I could turn this into a career, it'd be awesome. So I ended up managing and just working my way into getting the grad assistant job at University of Oregon and coaching at U of O. And then ever since then, I've been, I've been doing it professionally. It's certainly not for the faint of heart, this profession. It's something that, you know, there's very little stability in it at times, especially when you're starting off, you know, there's a lot of volunteer work that goes into it. And it was fine because I didn't have a family back then. You know, this was something that I was doing when I was still single and I really didn't care. I could throw every possession that I had in, in my truck and, you know, never owned a home, all those things. So, I mean, I sacrificed a lot to do what I really wanted to do. Yeah. I'd love to jump in to what you're doing now at Prolific Prep, but I'd actually like to go back a little bit between your time at Oregon in terms of coaching, I think at a, the collegiate level, but also professionally in China, what was that like? How did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, the coaching world, maybe even more so than any other business world, you know, how do you get a job in the coaching world? It is very, very difficult. And it's really based off of who you know and who you've had interactions with. And so, I mean, I know that, you know, in the normal business world, it sure helps to know people. But in the coaching world, if you don't know people, you have no chance. So you you have to build your network. It just so happened that while I was coaching at U of O, I met a guy who had major connections in China. So he ended up putting me with a professional team in China, which led into my next coaching job, was, which was as the head coach at a university in China. So I think I'm the only foreign coach, non-Chinese coach to coach in both their top pro league and then also in their university league, which was just an absolute adventure. Now, I spent three years of my life over in China. What was that like? What were some of the challenges? Obviously, being a, uh, a non-native-born Chinese citizen coaching, obviously unique, and you must stand out clearly from the pack. I was like, what were some of the challenges, and what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest issue was the language barrier. When I first got over there, I had a translator with me at all times, and I tried to learn the language as best I could, and I got to the point where I could, you know, I could actually, you know, order food, tell a cab driver, I could have like a 30 minute conversation. The problem was, is as a coach and being able to communicate things to your players, there's a, a lot of philosophical stuff that goes along with that. And then the way that they set it up over there normally is that you have Chinese assistant coaches that are helping you out, which there can be issues with not understanding everything that's being said at times, because you might explain it one way and then the Chinese assistant coaches explain it a different way. And I think anytime you're working with different languages, it's going to be a challenge, especially so if you're over there as the head coach and the former head coach is now your assistant coach and you don't speak the language very well. So like it, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out what was going on over there. And after three years, I had a pretty good, pretty good idea at that point. 
what was going to be happening. Yeah, it's interesting. I think obviously through a, a business context, and there's so much nuance in leadership and the words you use, how you say it, and you have a, a language barrier. And then another filter, which is your assistant coaches who are now conveying the message, who also, who actually, a guy you took his job. So I can imagine there's quite a filter on that. <laughs> well, and then you got your translators. And, you know, I got to the point where I knew enough Chinese to know if my translator was not translating correctly which was great. And in fact, my last year, I didn't even have one, but it took a while. It's not something that I picked up overnight. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean, it just, you know, basketball, as I said, any team sport, you know, if everybody's not on the exact same page and pulling the rope in the same direction, you really have no chance. You know, I would say greater than nine out of 10 teams probably kill themselves off throughout the course of a year because of internal dynamics. So it's something that like I'm extremely sensitive to here in the United States is what are the dynamics of your team? Do guys get along? Are guys selfish? You know, I mean, there's so many things that go into it, but I, I really find myself being more of a psychiatrist than basketball coach a lot of times. Yeah. I'd love to jump into that. Obviously uh team's such an important element, whether it's in the basketball world or in the corporate world, of course, and, and how you go about striking that balance, especially given the unique situation that you have. But just take me back a little bit in terms of how you made that jump from coaching professionally for that university in China to coaching actually a prep school in California. Well, I've, I've finished up my, my contract in China at a two-year deal at the university, and I was looking for a way to get back over to the United States. I actually had a deal in place to go coach for the Chinese national team as an assistant coach. But when I came back here to Northern California, uh, there were a couple of guys that I had known previously in the coaching world that had started this prep high school basketball team. And I really had no idea what it was at the time. They said, Hey, come on up and check out a practice. And I did. And, you know, at that time uh, we had uh, Josh Jackson, who was like the number one player in the world and at his age, he was on this basketball team. So I actually came in partway through their first year of starting the program. And I told them, I said, look, if you guys are looking for a head coach for next year, then I, I would be interested instead of going back over to China. And that's uh, eventually what we ended up doing. They said, okay, yep, we'd love to have you. So for years two, three, four, and five, I was the head coach for Prolific while we were building this brand and, and getting it to the point where it is now, where it's nationally and internationally recognized as one of the top places to, to go to improve your game and get a lot of really good players that come out to train with us. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about a prep school. I think the first time I heard that term was when LeBron James, I think went to Oak Hill Academy, you know, years ago now. And just, that I, I, I was new to me. Like what's a prep school and how's that different from a regular basketball team? So a normal high school basketball team is, almost all of them are underneath a state association. And there's both positives and negatives to that. The negatives being that you actually have a limited amount of time that you can work with your players. So what's happening is the best of the best players are starting to seek out places where they can go work on their game for you know longer periods of time, where they can play against other schools that have really good players on it. So it's it's more like they're going to be, it's more like college basketball than it is high school basketball. You know, for example, most McDonald's All-Americans, if they're playing normal high school basketball, would be double or even triple teamed at times, you know, if they were playing in a normal high school game, because they just wouldn't have the teammates around them 
to, you know, really balance it out, they would just get so much focus on them. So they're not really seeing, you know, realistic situations in game that they would be seeing when they get to college. So a lot of these really good players are starting to seek out the prep school route because they want to focus on their sport. Every team's got seven footers. Every team's got multiple division one players. So it's really just a lot more realistic as far as what they're going to be seeing in college with pick and roll coverages and et cetera, et cetera. So that's why these kids are wanting to do it on March 31st in nine days. We are one of eight teams to play for the national championship. It'll be on ESPN. So we're one of the final eight teams in the country to be playing right now. And, you know, the competition is extremely fierce. You think recruiting wars in college are crazy. The recruiting wars in the prep school world are getting to that point where it's crazy as well. But it's something where the kids are able to practice. And that's the other big thing. It's just like if you're playing at a normal high school and you're a really good player, you know, when you go to practices, you're most likely you don't have very many good players on your team and you're not able to like you know, drill yourself every day against really good players. Whereas like with us, you know, we got eight, nine, 10 division one guys on one team. Now they're actually, you know, they're, they're getting themselves better each day by just practicing against each other. So that's what prep school is. It's a normal high school. They take high school classes like any normal high school student would. And then when class gets out, they just, they come and play for us instead of their high school. And then we travel the country and play the best teams around the country. Yeah, I love an example just in terms of having 10 future Division I college athletes on one team, which is remarkable. And just obviously the opportunity to practice every day against top talents reminds me of putting yourself in tough situations where you surround yourself by great leaders, great in whatever world of work that you're in, whether it's basketball or business or, or even medical profession, but just the iron sharpens iron, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that phrase is almost cliche at this point, you know, the iron sharpens iron, but it really is true. Like you get around a bunch of really good people and you can't help but elevate yourself. The crazy thing is, is like, you know, we get some really good players, but we also get a lot of projects. And after a couple of years, they're so much better than where they started. So, you know, I think there's a false narrative out there that we just go out there and recruit all the best players. And then we claim that we've improved them really good players we do get we do improve but we also get a lot of guys that we see having you know potential for future and some of these players play d2 d3 naia um, but they come a long way while they're with us because they're playing against really good players every day and and there's a big difference we've got one kid right now who's at linfield up in oregon and he was guarding gary trent in practice every day Gary Trent Jr. is now with the Toronto Raptors and he just signed a three-year, $58 million deal or something like that. He's having a phenomenal year this year. So here's a kid who's guarding Gary Trent Jr. in practice. He goes to Linfield and his first year, he's freshman of the year, not just on his basketball team, not just in his conference, but for the whole Western region of the United States. And there's a reason for that. It's because he was going up against somebody who was at the time clearly better than him, but it, it changes his perspective on what is really good and what's not. So when he's playing against players that are not at that level, he can he can go out there and, and dominate. I think you definitely highlighted that misconception about prep schools. I think most people from the outside will think that, hey, these are all kids that come for a year, a couple of years, and they go to college or one and done in the NBA. But I know you've talked about some of the 
remarkable kids that have come in and just, and you provide a platform for them, not just in basketball, but in life and getting educated. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we do is besides the on the floor stuff is we do a ton of leadership training with them. You know, we talk about guys who have led their teams, exceptional teams, guys like Tim Duncan, you know, for the San Antonio Spurs, who's just absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Tim Duncan, when he was in college, co-authored a paper with his professor on what happens if you add a person into a group that has a huge ego. And basically what they figured out was like that group is going to be pretty darn dysfunctional. And, you know, he's a guy that, you know, when he went into the league, there was absolutely zero diva in him. You know, he was on time every time. He took criticism from the coaches without any problem at all. And he was a fantastic communicator with his teammates, not necessarily through words. You know, it's, there's, a, there's a big difference between like what we think of as a leader in Hollywood, you know, with guys standing up and giving like big speeches and whatnot versus what has really worked throughout history is people that are followed by their teammates. So we, you know, we study some of these people and, you know, we really try to develop the person and we try to develop leaders with our team because whatever college that they go to, you know, we want them to be those guys and we want them to have that skill set. Yeah. What else do you do to prepare them? Because obviously I know they have different situations where one, you know, some players will go they'll do one year in college and go to the NBA, but some will go four years in college. How do you go about developing them? both to be successful in college and beyond, but on and off the court? Everybody's goal is different. We get some guys who their athleticism, they're just unbelievably blessed, right? Like they've been just gifted some incredible athleticism. And of course they work at it as well in the weight room and whatnot. So a guy like Adam Bona, who's going to be at UCLA next year, you know, he has the potential to be a one and done player and one and done, meaning he goes to college for one year and then he puts his name in the draft and gets drafted into the NBA. There's other guys that just don't have that ability, you know, but they could be really, really good college players. So everybody's ceiling is different. Like our goal is just to get the most out of everybody that we can. And as I say, everybody's path is different. Some guys where you we would want them to go to a mid-major Division One school, not a high-major Division One school. So, say, you know, we're putting them in a Mountain West, you know, school instead of a Pac-12 school. And the reason why we're doing that is because we think that they'll be more successful in those those situations. Even though everybody always wants to go play at the best of the best of the best, really, that's not the best path for most people. Only if you're really you know, looking at being a one and done type guy or at least a two or three year guy, like, you know, where you could jump to the NBA would, would I suggest going to like a high major school like that? How do you go about practically doing that? I mean, that seems pretty challenging because you think about the guys who want to go to a high D one school and make the NBA. I'm sure they want a lot more press. They want to make sure their names and lights when they're on national TV. Yet you have other guys who are just focusing on, 
just maybe getting a, a four-year scholarship and then going on and doing something else in their life. Like, how do you go about balancing what would be pretty different competing interests? Yeah, I mean, that's, and it's one of the things that we do is we explain to everybody that everybody's path is different and you can't compare yours to somebody else's as tempting it is as it is to do so. You know, we've got a big seven footer on our team right now who's been playing basketball for all of four years. And when you look at him, you know, in the airport, you must, you'd think that he would probably be, be one of the best players in the world. We joke about it a little bit, you know, as far as players that look like that, they look like they could be really good, but you know what? He just, his skill set isn't there yet. Now he's come so far this year. It's incredible, but everybody's at a different stage in their developmental process. And our challenge is to just get them as far as we can possibly get them before they end up having to move on to the next level. So, you know, he's going to end up getting a division one scholarship. He's from Africa. He'll be the first one in his family to graduate from a college. I mean, shoot, we had a kid a few years ago who's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo right now. And he's the first person in the history of his country to earn a division one athletic scholarship. I mean, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. And he's going to end up graduating from an incredible academic institution like Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and he's a starter on the basketball team and he's doing great. So, you know, everybody's path is different. It's part of it is, is, you know, you, you have to be around this for a while to kind of understand and parse where each player is and how good are they really. And it's still never an exact science. I mean, that's why guys in the NBA get their draft wrong every single year. They'll draft the wrong guy, you know, and these are the guys that supposedly know what they're doing. But the guys that we try to focus on getting are guys that have like a really good work ethic that are really good people. Because if you're ever going to be good in this sport, just trying to get better every day is, is just got to be a part of your life. If you don't enjoy doing it, you should go find something else to do. So what are some of the other, your other leadership values? Obviously, you gave a great example of that. And I can tell it's deeply important to you beyond just getting guys into the NBA and, and helping them have long-term career success, but it's those stories that that really it seems like really drive you. But what what are your other values that you're trying to instill within your players as you're coaching them? I think, and I don't want to get too political here, but when you look at the political discourse in this country right now, it's very difficult to have people on the same page. And I think that's one of the absolute greatest things about playing sports while you're growing up. Team sports is that you have to learn how to talk to people. You have to learn how to, to listen to other people. You have to learn how to communicate together, even though you might not be from similar backgrounds. I mean, we've got kids from, you know, all over Africa, Europe, United States. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about a real diverse organization here as far as where everybody's from. And so what I'm always trying to do is get them to be able to communicate with each other in a positive way to where people are not taking offense to what somebody might be suggesting to them. And basically what I'm trying to do is instill in everybody's mind that we are an organization of people. Each one of us has our own individual goals. And what we're trying to do as an organization Everybody within this organization is trying to help everybody within that organization reach 
their individual goals. And that's a really big concept because it's cutthroat where we're at. And if you don't perform, there's going to be somebody else who gets a chance. But at the same time, if everybody understands that the coaches and the players around them have their best interests in mind, then the sensitivity can go away a little bit because I can trust that the people that I have around me on an everyday basis are trying to get me where I want to go. So I think that's like a pretty major concept for what I do so that I can gain trust from my players is for them to know that I have their best interest in mind and that our organization, there's not going to be anybody else in the world who's going to have their back like our organization has their back. Their teammates are going to have their back. You know, we'll go on the road and we'll play in front of 8,000 people. You know, that's starting to happen again now. And it's like, Everybody in there wants you to lose, except for everybody on our team. So you look to your right and you look to your left. Those are your brothers, and those are the guys that you're going to battle with, and we're trying to help each other. So I think that that helps alleviate some of the sensitivity that people might feel when getting coached or having other players give them suggestions, etc. That's a huge challenge because you have a team of uber achievers who are used to probably being the number one alpha at whatever their respective school or was before they came to you. How do you create that team dynamic? I mean, you gave some great examples in terms of a little bit of us against them. It's all about helping us achieve our individual goals. But what else do you do to really bring the team together to be working as a high performing team that's successful on the court and off the court? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, is they're going to have to enjoy each other's company. You know, that's another challenge, especially with cell phones these days. So you want to try to get them in situations, not just on the court, but off the court where they can interact with each other. Then we bring in a lot of people that are used to shooting the ball. Sometimes they're used to being, you know, they're used to being the man on their team. So they're used to shooting the ball, getting as many shots as they want to get. With our team, you can't do that. And part of it is, is always just going back to, okay, what's your next step going to be? This is college basketball before college basketball. We are trying to get you ready for your next step so that when you get there, you look good and then you can be the one and done player you want to be. If you go there and you fall flat on your face in college, it doesn't work. So these are the ways that you're going to have to play. You know, the pass is king as far as the actual sport of basketball goes. If you have a good passing team, you'll have a team that works together and most likely you're going to have a pretty successful team. Some guys don't want to pass. It's pretty darn selfish. Some guys want to pass, but they don't know how to pass. So you got to figure all that stuff out. But eventually, at the end of the year, you want to have a team that is a, a great passing team that helps each other defensively, You know, that covers for each other, that doesn't get down on each other when things aren't going right, that lifts each other up, that keeps the emotions positive every day in the gym because there's nothing worse than going to the gym and you know getting yelled at every day or getting you know just not enjoying your time there if you're yeah, as i say if you're if you're not enjoying it go find something else to do so i try to keep the atmosphere as positive as possible my critics would say that i'm probably too positive but that's okay i would rather be too positive than too negative with my players so i'm you know i would say that three out of the four things that I'll say to somebody is positive. 
if they make a mistake, I don't freak out on them emotionally or scream and yell at them. It's something where it's more of an academic conversation that I try to have with them about why they should be doing things a certain way. Teams take on, they're a reflection of their coach. If you watch a game on TV and you see a coach jumping up and down and complaining to the refs every time, then guess what? Their whole team's going to be doing that too. If you're more cool, calm, and collected on the sideline and you stay focused on the things that, that matter, which are really the next play because you can't change what just happened, you know, if you, if you can keep yourself level-headed, then you can actually make adjustments, you know, have potential to win that game. I look at coaches that I look up to that are in the NBA and in college, guys like Bennett from University of Virginia, who's been there now for a while. I love Steve Kerr. Greg Popovich is fantastic. Brad Stevens, when he was with the Boston Celtics, loved the way he coached. That kind of demeanor is kind of the ones, it, it fits better with my personality. You can't be somebody you're not, but that's a lot more my type of personality as far as like, you know, what my demeanor is with my players. It's more of an analytical approach than it is an emotional approach. Yeah, it's interesting. And you point to authenticity too. You said three out of four of your critics would say you're too positive. And interestingly enough, I was working with a couple of CEO groups recently and I actually had a question about being positive and being optimistic. And I thought for sure they would just shoot it down. And they actually universally embraced it in terms of you got to be positive. You got to lead your team because you're the one who's leading them out of the darkness in some tough times and, and trying to do things that are hard, which you're trying to do things that are hard. You're going into a national championship scenario, which is going to be difficult. A lot of pressure, a lot of media and other teams are loaded. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, as, as good as we are, I mean, we're playing teams that are actually more talented than we are. So it's like, okay, how do you beat those teams? You have to out team them. You have to out detail them. You have to not turn the ball over. You have to get more offensive rebounds than they do. You have to, you know, you have to execute, you have to help each other. You have to out team them. And that's why I think basketball is just such a great sport because you can do that in basketball your closeness and your connectivity can outperform teams that are not connected and that, you know, play for themselves and are on their own page. You know, so much of what you do is business wise, but I think in any team scenario, that's like the number one thing. Everybody has to be on the same page. Everybody has to have the same goals. Everybody has to be willing to take some criticism. Sometimes everybody has to be and see the big picture on why this is going to work if we do it this way. Yeah, I wanted just to reflect back on one of the comments you said, which I think is pretty interesting. And the way I'll internalize it is you have to balance them standing out with being ready for the next step. Because it's like, how do you, and I guess this gets back to the recruiting situation, which is how do you recruit players to come in knowing they probably won't stand out as much because they're around a team of really talented kids, but you're going to get them ready to be successful. So it's like that balance of standing out and, and being that number one prospect, but also being a team player who's willing to pass and do the small things like playing defense to be ready for that next level. It's not easy. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest challenge pretty much every year, especially because most of the players that we bring in are seniors that year. So not only you getting a new batch of players every year, but you're trying to get them to play the right way in a very short amount of time. And it's a sales pitch to get them to understand 
that the guys that really know what they're talking about, the evaluators that really know what they're looking at, these kids are getting evaluated by NBA teams already, and they're in high school. They're obviously being evaluated by colleges. But guys that really know what they're doing, as far as evaluators go, they will appreciate it if you play the right way. And there's definitely a right way and definitely a wrong way to play. So if you're on the floor and you make the right plays, even if you're not putting up the numbers necessarily that you think you should be putting up, as long as they're the right plays, the evaluators will recognize that. But if you're trying to get your numbers and making the wrong plays to get your numbers, then the evaluator is going to recognize that as well. And so it's, it's trying to get them to understand that we might not need a 25 point a guy night. We might need a guy who gets 12 points, eight rebounds and five assists instead of the guy who scores 25 and gets a couple rebounds and no assists and shoots 30% from the floor. Because in our game, it's all about efficiency. And that's what the best evaluators understand at this point is who are the guys that can make the right play that understand how to play? And then can I project them in my system? Do they have selfishness in their game? How will they fit in with my team dynamic? So there's all of those things that most kids probably can't even fathom when they first get to us. But it's part of the sales process as well as these are the steps that you're going to need to take to be really good, you know, and we're going to do everything we can to help you get there. And that must be incredibly challenging because of all the back in the day, there was a, a few sports pundits, right? Now there's pick any team, any sport, any level. And there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people who are commenting and you talk about the quote unquote evaluators. And it's like, how do you play just for them and ignore the noise about them not putting up 40, 50 points a game? I know when I checked out your box scores in past years, you know, I was like, oh, wait, how's this person a number one kid in the country? The numbers aren't that impressive. You know, 15 points, eight boards, six assists, but it obviously makes sense within that context, but just must be real tough to get people to really buy into that to the voices that matter. Yeah. And it's not just the kids, right? It's their parents. So it's a sales pitch to their parents as well. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spend on the phone every year with parents trying to get them, even if the kids are totally bought in, you know, it's, it's trying to get the parents to totally buy in. It's, you know, trying to get their AU coach or their trainer or, you know, people that, you know, these kids aren't just talking to us. They're talking to all these other people that have helped them get to the point where they're at. So now all of a sudden, if they, you know, there's just, there's a lot to it. (laughs) But, you know, number one is to get the players buy-in. And then at the same time, there's a lot of work on the back end that has to be done to take some of the pressure off these kids because everybody has their own philosophy, right? My philosophy might be different from, you know, all these other people's philosophy and that's, and that's fine. You know, they're entitled to their own opinions. So at some point there's got to be trust that's put in with the coaching staff and the directors that we know what we're doing. That's part of the upfront sales pitch that has to happen. Yeah, I know. Speaking from the parental perspective, as a parent of athletic kids, I can say we're not always exactly objective. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Like I can watch a basketball game and I could say, oh, they should have passed it to my my kid right there. Oh, oh, they they missed them. 
oh, they must be looking them off. You know, they must be not passing to them on purpose. But if you go around every single kid and you focus on just one, I mean, every kid is having that happen to them. So it's one of those things where you're right. Like, you know, parents are not objective and they're very focused on their sons or daughters. And, you know, it's one of these things where in all of youth sports, it's difficult because you want what's best for your kid. And I've had plenty of people tell me, wait till your kids grow up. You're going to be the same way. And I'm just like, well, maybe I will be, but maybe I might handle it a different way. (laughs) Right? Like it's not easy to be in the coach's shoes. And for most coaches that are out there, they're making, they're not making any money doing it. They're doing it strictly as a volunteer because they love the sport and they want to help kids out. And I just think, I, I wish more people would keep that perspective. Even people that are, you know, are basketball people that I know that have been around basketball for a long time. We might have differing opinions sometimes on best way to use players. It's important that I have open lines of communication with not just my players, but everybody that's in their camp because they're going to be feeling pressured one way or the other. And trying to take that pressure off of the players is, is important when you, especially when you think they're going to be playing on ESPN, you know, we're on ESPN in nine days. I had a 30 minute interview with Paul Biancardi and the whole, you know, all the evaluators and guys who are going to be broadcasting the game and whatnot this morning. And it's like, these guys are just scrutinized nonstop. And it's because basketball is a huge business and everybody is trying to determine who the best players are. I mean, you can't even, you got shoe companies, you got, you know, now with like the NIL deal has gone through with NCAA, you can actually go as a player now and you can make money in college off of image and likeness. That's what NIL stands for. Name image likeness deals. So you can be promoting on Instagram or whatever. So yeah, you're dealing now with this whole other facet was, which is, you know, players want followers on Instagram. And, you know, one of them, this is a whole nother topic, but I mean, you're basically at some point, you're actually robbing some of these kids of their natural development because they're worried about protecting their brand because they think they're going to be able to make money off their brand when they get to college, which they are going to be able to. So if they get exposed at a national level into being not as good of a player as everybody seems to think that they are, now all of a sudden, they're not allowed to make mistakes anymore. So you can imagine how much pressure is on these kids, you know, when they got their parents breathing down their necks that, hey, you know, we're going to get you to college. You're going to make money when you get into college off your NIL deals. But, you know, at the same time, we have to protect your brand. Can't have you look bad. There's a whole nother dynamic that's gone into play just within the last like couple of years. It's like a, a whole nother layer beyond the standing out to get recruited to college and to get drafted in the NBA. Now it's just this standing out, making sure your brand's right, making sure you probably look cool on social media and the clips are edited. And that just adds a whole nother layer of complexity for sure. No, the basketball world is, uh, it's a uh, crazy profession. I've loved it. And the thing that I just really love about it is how much effect that you can have on some of these kids. And not all of them are going to take it, you know, but hopefully a lot of them do and, and pocket it. And whether they appreciate it now or later, at some point they will. 
Well, Billy, where can people go to find out more about uh, Prolific Prep? Maybe even catch a few games on TV or even in person, potentially. Well, we do have a website, prolificprep.org. If you wanted to find out more about the organization, follow on Twitter, Instagram. It's all out there. Social media is such a huge part of all this at this point. But that's what I would say is you can follow me on my Twitter and my Instagram, Coach B McKnight. You know, for any of you deciding that you want to be a coach, if there's anybody out there that wants to do it and wants to bounce some ideas off me, you know, just, yeah, hit me up on social media and I'll, I'll be sure to get back to you. But it's an exciting segment to be in as far as what you do with your life and certainly with its challenges. You know, there's, it's not just all smooth sailing, but it's uh, extremely rewarding at the same time. Well, Billy, I appreciate it. I know you're running around the house scrambling to uh, stay away from the kids as they take naps, wake up from naps, keeping the family happy. And I know you've got practice here in a few minutes. So I really appreciate your time, Billy. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.